Most people know that Law Matters was created to open the lines of communication with law enforcement, as well as create educational opportunities so we can be better, more informed citizens. For the last several months, all the news stations have been promoting a negative mindset towards the entire law enforcement community. I agree that some of the recent events are beyond egregious. However, those events do not represent the vast majority of the brave men and women who risk their lives daily to keep the rest of us safe. I'm asking you to please, next time you see a member of law enforcement, show some appreciation and thank them for their service. Now, let's start the show. Good morning, everybody. Thank you for joining us this morning. Before I introduce our guest today, I want to remind everybody that swimming in the Relito is probably a bad idea. If you're driving a car, you've got passengers going through a road or a wash that's got running water in it, is endangering you, your life. Those are the firefighters, the Tucson Police Department, and search and rescue. We don't want to be stupid. We do have a stupid motorist law. You will be charged in more ways than just a ticket. So stay out of the water. On the phone today, we have Assistant U.S. Attorney Kevin Rapp. I've been wanting to do this show for a long time because I've had people ask me what constitutes mortgage fraud. And while we're not going to give out personal, individualized um, advice today at all, we're going to talk in general terms to help you understand what you're looking at when you're looking at loan papers. Um, Kevin, are you there? Can you hear me? I'm here, Sherry. Okay, uh, thanks for cool. Having me. It's good to be here. Yeah, thanks for thanks for. I'm glad you didn't drive down. It is pouring rain. He's yeah, calling in. Rain here. Is it? Yeah, it's no fun to drive in the rain. <laughs> So, but what, we need the water here, so we'll take oh, it. Oh, yeah. I know. They need it in California, too. I wonder if they're getting any. Yeah. So, what constitutes, in general form, words, what constitutes mortgage fraud? Well, mortgage fraud is misrepresentations in the uh, mortgage process. So, if somebody is to apply for a mortgage and they lie on their loan application. They misstate their assets, their income, their liabilities, how they're going to use the property. That's mortgage fraud. And of course, we saw that uh, on steroids between 2004 and 2007. And that, of course, is what resulted in the financial meltdown in October of uh, 2008. And Arizona, of course, uh, paid dearly for that because we are a economy that is based largely on real estate. We don't grow unless we grow. And um, Arizona is one of those sand states like Nevada and Florida, Southern California, that really got hit hard um, by uh, uh, mortgage defaults. And, and, a, and a large uh, portion of that was based upon fraud. And so um, obviously, uh, we saw uh, some, uh, you know, um, uh, an implementation of, of, um, of uh, ways to uh, um, uh, limit that. Uh, the, certainly, the banks uh, are now much more vigilant um, in reviewing loan applications. Anybody who's applied for a mortgage recently knows that even if they are high credit scores and have uh, good income and and uh, um, 
low liabilities. They know that even they have to go through quite a rigorous process to get a loan. Uh, so that is one way the fraudsters have been um, restricted. They they can't exploit the um, the holes in the lending process as much as they could back in back in 2004 through 2007. Yeah, as a so loan that, officer, people you know they think we're picking on them when we have to ask repeatedly for different things, and we have to third party verify everything. They're not going to take. The borrower's word for it, they're not going to take the loan office word for it. They have to third-party verify, and sometimes that takes a little extra time. Yeah. Yeah, but it's it's ultimately good because, uh, you know, if you're a homeowner, you don't want to be um, sitting on a street where there are two or three houses going into foreclosure because of fraud, because that's going to impact um the equity and the value of your own house. And so um, all of that is good. And we want to see um, banks be vigilant these days and make sure that uh, the person applying for the loan is actually the right person, not some type of a straw buyer, uh, that that person is going to, to be able to pay back that loan. And um, they want to make sure that they do have the assets and the income to to qualify for that loan. So those are good things. And and we saw that as a result of the uh, SAFE Act that was, you know, now it's it's beyond 10 years ago. Um, That was one of the first things that was passed federally to make sure that loan officers um, meet certain requirements. Uh, I will tell you that I prosecuted. numerous cases that arose out of the financial meltdown. And I saw many a loan officer with felony convictions and, uh, you know, running their, their, their uh, loan mill out of, um, if they were a broker, running it out of their garage. And, um, of course, they didn't care who the borrower was just as long as they could get their commission. And so those are, those are some of the good things that have been put in place to make sure that the, the, uh, loan process is above board and that we don't see the default rate that we saw back then. Okay, you used an expression, straw buyer, and I've there are certain documents when I'm, I'm also a certified closing agent, when we're doing a closing, that people have to sign saying they have the authority to do what they're doing, and when they question, why am I signing this, I to make sure you're not a straw buyer, explain to people what a straw buyer is. Well, a straw buyer is somebody that has been um, solicited or induced into, uh, you know, being a buyer for a home. They have no intention of of making those mortgage payments. Uh, I, you know, I always look for those handwritten signs at intersections saying, you know, uh, looking for a, a real estate apprentice. What they're really asking for is somebody who has decent credit, you know, somewhere in the 700s, maybe in the 800s, um, and they're just going to use your credit score to buy a house. They have no the they will give you some percentage of the loan. You might make 10, 15, 20,000. All you have to do is give them your your ID and your credit score and they will buy a house in your name. And um, there's no, there's the straw buyer has no intention of ever making the um, making the payments. 
And uh, they are just that, just a, just a straw, somebody that is, is not going to ultimately be responsible. And so what we did see, you know, during that time frame in 2004 to 2007, we saw self-described real estate investors out there, you know, trying to find as many straw buyers as they could to um, buy houses in their name. They would take the equity out of the houses. It was uh, what, what we referred to as a cashback scheme where they would uh, approach the seller of a house, uh, say the, the seller was wanted to sell the house for $500,000. The, the real estate investor would approach them and say, look, we'll buy the house for $600,000. We'll give you $100,000 more than your asking price. But you have to agree to, um, once we get that loan for $600,000, once we manipulate all the documents, manipulate the appraisal, you have to agree to give us $100,000 back. And the seller, um, you know, was happy to get their asking price. So they were happy to be part of this scheme. They would wire back that $100,000 to the real estate investor. The house would be purchased uh, by a straw buyer. And so the, the, um, the, the real estate investor would split a portion of that $100,000 with the straw buyer. The straw buyer was happy to have it. They would go about on their way. And then six months later, an FBI agent would show up on their doorstep and say, hey, I noticed that you uh, bought this house uh, and you didn't make any of the payments on the house. And I noticed that uh, when we looked at the loan application, you put down that you made $150,000 a year when, in fact, you made really thirty dollars or $40,000 a year. We noticed that, uh, you know, you had misstated some of your liabilities. We also saw that you intended to use that house as your primary residence when, in fact, uh, you already were renting a place or had another house. So that's a good example of, of, a, of a straw buyer and also how the schemes back in that time frame worked where they could, you know, get the suck the equity out of the house. The house would ultimately fall in, into foreclosure and end up in a um, trustee sale. You know, people don't realize how that affects the entire neighborhood, the economy, everything that is around us. And it sounds like, you know, a quick and easy way to make a few thousand dollars, but you're going to end up in jail. Yeah. Oh, and, and of course, a lot of people did go to jail uh, back then. Um, you know, the 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 courts, uh, many of the judges did not have the appetite for this type of fraud because because of the collateral consequences, because of the impact it had on the innocent homeowner who just happened to be in that subdivision or neighborhood where this scheme was being perpetrated. And here they had a, uh, you know, a, a house that perhaps was uh, valued at half a million dollars. But once once those houses around them start going into foreclosure, that impacts them. And so it has some very devastating collateral consequences. But fortunately, um, you know, uh, we've learned our lesson from that. And the, the banks, of course, have learned learned their lesson. You know, they were bailed out through the TARP program after all of these um, uh, houses went into foreclosure nationwide. And so, so I do think we have learned from that. And I think that... Uh, you know, you're not going to see that type of um, pervasive loan fraud that we saw back during the time frame. You're going to see different types 
of fraud. You know, um, fraud moves with the market and the current opportunity, and that's um, that's where you'll see the fraudsters now having to be a little bit more innovative because they can't exploit the loan process. They have to come up with some other um, some other types of fraud, and, in, and that you know includes just identifying a house that might be a second home or might be a house that's going into foreclosure. I, I, I think you're going to see a lot of houses, unfortunately, because of the pandemic and people uh, having, you know, financial pressures. Maybe they're in a area of the economy that was impacted um, by the pandemic, you know, the service economy. Maybe they can't make their mortgage payments. Somebody will uh, check, the fraudster will check the counter recorder's office and see um, or other databases to see what houses are going into foreclosure. They may identify that house and forge a warranty deed to the house, record it, then go to a lender and, and you know, tell them that, hey, I've, I've got this, this is my house, and maybe try to get some type of a home equity loan on it or even worse, even try to sell the house. These are difficult types of frauds that are, that are um, you know, uh, I think easily discovered, but, you know, sophisticated schemes like this, often the fraudsters take measures to delay the discovery so they can continue to perpetuate the scheme before um, somebody, you know, figures it out. But those are the types of schemes we're seeing now where people are, you know, filing false warranty deeds, showing up a house at a house that might be vacant because of a foreclosure, trying to change the locks on the ski, on the, the house, and just, in many cases, just moving in and squatting. Uh, it's not uncommon. Uh, we also see them using the bankruptcy courts to file false bankruptcy petitions and, and identifying properties that, uh, that are going into foreclosure as part of their bankruptcy to, to sort of delay the foreclosure of the house so they can work this other part of the scheme and, and uh, you know, um, we have, we have had situations where, you know, snowbirds have a townhouse or a condo or a home down here. They go away for the summer and come back and, and somebody's living in their house. And they say, no, yeah. I bought it. You know, yeah. what happens uh, in a situation like that? Well, you know, a couple things. One, um, you know, when, when the people are found in the house, they call the local police department, the, the, um, you know, the, the fraudster might try to produce some type of a warranty deed and say, hey, no, this is my house. Um, you know, those documents are easily detected as being fraudulent. Um, you know, the the homeowner will show up and, and say, hey, look, or a property manager, this person or a real estate agent, they don't they don't own this house. And so the, the local law enforcement uh, ushers them out. I will tell you that. Um, you know, what we are seeing in our investigations, uh, which we didn't have back in, uh, you know, uh, 2008, 2009, is this the, the ring um, cameras on that people now are have installed uh, as part of their front door. You know, they can really um, and I, 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 I don't have any stock in the company or anything, but I think if you have a house, if you have, if you're a snowbird and you live somewhere else, I, don't, I think that's a great idea. So you can monitor your house, and yes. and we've had many of investigation where we've been able to get the videos, and we see the fraudsters trying to 
change the locks on a house, uh, um, and the homeowner who might be out of the state gets alerted by that and maybe calls the local police department. They go over and they find this sort of stranger trying to claim that they actually own the house, and, you know, they, the real owner gets on the phone with the police. No, that's not the case. Uh, so, yeah, that's that's the type of frauds we're seeing right now. They're, they're, um, they can't exploit the, the lending process as much as they can in Previous, so they have to sort of default to trying to file false documents with the county recorder to try to claim that they really own the house. And yeah, there's the, are- there's pros and cons to the ring doorbell, but I I think there's more pros than cons if it's used correctly. Yes, no, I agree. Uh, look, if you have a house and uh, you're out of state. Um, you know, you want to be vigilant about uh, uh, keeping an eye on it, have people come over, take a look at it, make sure that, um, you know, you, that, uh, that that there's nobody living in the house or that no, somebody's not uh, trying to take advantage of the fact that you're a second homeowner. Uh, I also think it's the case if you have a house going into foreclosure, if you're a property manager or a real estate agent, uh, um, you just want to be a little bit more vigilant because, those are the houses that the fraudsters are going to identify as maybe being an opportunity for them to try to file some false documents, maybe convince a, a lender, um, maybe not necessarily a conventional lender, uh, maybe a, a hard a money lender. lender, hard money lender that, hey, I really own the house. And, and uh, obviously, sometimes the hard money lender might not have the um, sophistication to um, make sure that this really is a this person really does own the house in the in the same way that a conventional bank has and so that's where they they could be defrauded we had a a listener call in and and ask their comment was that a lot of the problem during the 22,000 um era was that the loan officers were paid on commission and they want to know if that stopped and i can tell you no we are still paid on commission. However, I don't even see the application. You fill it out online, and it goes straight to my processor. So if you're lying on your application, it's all on you. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the underwriting um, is just just much more stringent these days. You know, they're, they're asking for tax returns, and uh, as you noted, uh, third-party um third-party uh, confirmation of information. I don't think nobody, and nobody's taking any chances these days. And I just don't see, we just don't see the rate of that type of mortgage fraud as we did back then. I mean, I don't think we're ever going to see, um, you know, maybe I'm naive, but I don't think we're going to see that, that level of fraud where anybody could be a mortgage, uh, a loan officer. And yeah. it's just driven by, you know, commission-based fees, and so you were operating on volume. Um, the banks uh, were very lax, as we know, uh, in their underwriting, and um, and and it just became a combustible combination. And so, and you know, and in effect, the country, nation, you know, nationwide, and it took us a while to dig out of that. We saw home prices go down and um, to record levels, and. So I just don't think we're going to see that type of fraud. Uh, I hope not. Uh, and that, like you said, when we started talking, that's why the SAFE Act was in, 
enacted and everybody has to follow those rules. I take tests every year. I have to get certified every year. And as a closing agent, I have to have background check. It's just remarkable what we go through to stay in business. And it's a good thing. It's good for the borrower because it's for their protection. And I know it's frustrating sometimes to have the loan officer say, hey, we need to verify your employment again because we're getting ready to close. We want to make sure you weren't fired from your job or your income status hasn't changed. And, you know, they're like, well, again? Yeah, again, sorry. And we'll even do a soft pull on your credit and make sure you didn't buy that Ferrari you were talking about. So, right, right. <laughs> so right. Yeah, you know, there, there are things that we have to do. Those are the guidelines, and that's the way it goes. What do people do? How do, okay, you're... You're a home buyer, you're on Craigslist or Zillow or whatever, and you're trying to buy a house, you're thinking of buying a house. What red flags, when you're looking at these ads, what red flags should the consumer be aware of? When they're looking at uh, um, ads on Craig for, for real estate for sale on Craigslist? Yes. Well, I mean, it's that, that's, that's whole, it's the whole maximum. It, it, it's, if it sounds too good to be true, it usually is. And yeah. so if you find a house that is um, well below the value of that particular neighborhood, um, it, 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 it seems like it's a, a um, you know, there doesn't seem to be anything obviously wrong with it. That's, that's the main red flag, you know, that when it's too good to be true, it, it usually is. And that goes not only in in the real estate context but uh you know i handle a great deal of investment fraud as well and so uh that that's sort of our byline you know if if, if an investment just if the uh, rate of return is is through the roof and um it it usually is too good to be true so that's you just you know like anything you have to do your due diligence you have to get out there and and look at the property. Um, I, I would never buy a, a piece of real estate side unseen. Um, and I know that, you know, with the limited um, inventory of houses, people are, um, you know, uh, desperate to, to buy a house and they're into bidding wars. And oftentimes these days you're paying um, uh, more than, than the, the asking price. That's ridiculous. I, I, now is not the time for people to go out and buy a house because of that. And, yeah. you know, in about a year from now when all the, everything levels out and you're still paying 150000 more than the house is worth, you know, you're not going to be a happy person. <laughs> no. Yeah, so, I mean, you know, look, don't, uh, don't get caught up in the hysteria and think, hey, I have to buy this house, and so... This is an area where fraudsters can exploit. They know that people, they know the inventory is low. They know people are desperate to get into a home. And so they will uh, unquestionably try to exploit that area. And, and if they can, they can, um, you know, find a house that they perhaps um, they don't really own, that they've, they've filed a false warranty deed, they've listed that house, they've, uh, maybe they've, they've uh, solicited somebody else to, to, act as a another buyer to sort of bid up the house um sell the house and then the next thing you know they the person buying it finds out that this person didn't even really uh, didn't 
really even own the house. That that's the kind of things that you'll you'll see these days. You know, they'll they will exploit that area. Are you okay? We're hearing okay. a lot of noise. <laughs> oh no! I just dropped. Uh, I just dropped another phone. That's all right. But, oh, <laughs> the government you know phone. What? No big deal. <laughs> if you if you think that there's something amiss, um, and you you've done some due diligence, you find some maybe some false documents or something that is um, that 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 makes you think that uh, you might be the victim of fraud in a real estate transaction, call the FBI. Yeah. 1-800-CALL-FBI. Uh, it is the complaint line. It's monitored 24-7. Um, they'll be responsive uh, to your complaint. They'll look into it. They'll get back to you. Um, they are always, you know, the FBI is always trying to see if they can um, smoke out a scheme, um, that it's not just a, a one-off deal, that maybe there is some other uh, uh, conspirators that are uh, trying to commit this, a fraud, a real estate fraud on sort of a, uh, a volume type of a, a situation. So don't, don't be shy about checking in with the FBI, and if not the FBI, look in, and if you're in Phoenix, Scottsdale, wherever, look into your local uh, police department. They have um, they they also have um, complaint lines, uh, and that that will get to uh, some some type of a white collar investigator who will take a long hard look at it. And if you think you're um, a victim of consumer fraud, don't be shy about calling the state attorney general's office. They're uh, very much uh, have a robust consumer fraud division that will look into it. I another question from a listener. If they go, if somebody, somebody's behind in their taxes and they buy a house for the um, taxes that are due, but the mortgage on the house hasn't been paid, do they owe the mortgage too? Hmm. So I'm, I just have to understand the question. So are you talking about property taxes? Right. Okay. So, uh, so there's uh, there's property taxes due on the the home, and they 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 buy the seller and they buy the house um, at auction on the courthouse steps for the price of the taxes. Well, it would seem like the there'd be so I'm not that familiar with that, but there there would seem like there'd be a tax lien on the property, and and that tax lien before it transfers to another buyer, that tax lien would have to be paid off. I mean, that would be part of the, the settlement, I think. That's just my, uh, that's just my off-the-cuff. Um, yeah, but I think the answer. question is, if they buy it for the taxes that are due and, and get the tax lien removed, do they owe the mortgage company or the loan company that money, too? Because if they're not paying their taxes, they're probably not paying their mortgage payment. Oh, you know, I don't know the answer to that. I, I, no, I, so they, I. they're buying the property. They pay the they pay the property taxes that are that is due and owing on the property. Right. Uh, and and the 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 property transfers. They, they are you saying they is he asking that they still have to pay the mortgage company? I don't. I don't, I don't yeah, that's that that's work. the question. I'm I'm not sure. I think it, each situation is probably different. Yeah. Yeah. You can't just cut uh, out the mortgage company. 
Yeah. That's what I'm mm. thinking. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. People think of the, I'm just like, okay, I know how your mind works. Okay, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be back in a few. Stay with us. This is Deputy Chuke with Pim County Search and Rescue, reminding you that if you bring it in, take it out when you go. This includes dirty diapers. Littering is a criminal finable act, as well as a crime against nature. Daylight is fading and the temperature is dropping. You are not only cold, hungry, and lost in a densely wooded area, you're injured. Time is of the essence. SARSI is a highly trained team of dedicated volunteers who work closely with Pima County Search and Rescue to help people in critical situations just like this. To join an exclusive team of heroes, go to sarsi.org. That's S-A-R-C-I dot org. We need your knowledge, experience, and of course, your generous spirit. 1030 in police code means unnecessary use or unauthorized use of radio. Something Law Matters takes advantage of every Saturday morning at 8. On our next show, we have Santa Cruz County Sheriff's Commander Castillo joining our conversation. You don't want to be left out. Go to lawmatters1030.org to enlist in our 1030 challenge today. Then get your questions ready and join our chat at 790-2040. I look forward to hearing from you. This is Deputy Chuke with Pima County Search and Rescue. Save your phone's battery life so when you get lost, we may contact you. Wearing bright colors that can be seen from a distance helps the effort. This is a rescue, not a scavenger hunt. To report suspected human trafficking, please call the National Human Trafficking Resource Center at 1-888-373-7888 or text HELP or INFO to 233-733. To learn more about Homeland Security investigations and our efforts to combat human trafficking, please visit our website at www.ice.gov or check out the DHS Blue Campaign at www.dhs.gov slash blue campaign. For more information on the Southern Arizona Anti-Trafficking Unified Response Network, please visit us at www.saturn.org or find us on Facebook. This is Amy, a volunteer with Pima County Search and Rescue. Before you head out, turn your location app on in your smartphone, then power that phone off until you need it. In an emergency, you will need a fully charged phone. It's Mark from Law Matters, and I'm asking you to join us in our 1030 campaign. 1030 is code for unnecessary use of radio. Keep our radio show free from unnecessary advertising by visiting lawmatters1030.org and click the 1030 campaign button. Your monthly tax-deductible donation of $10.30 will allow us to broadcast public service announcements instead of advertisements. Visit lawmatters1030.org and sign up today. This is Deputy Chuke with Pim County Search and Rescue, reminding you that if you bring it in, take it out when you go. This includes dirty diapers. Littering is a criminal finable act, as well as a crime against nature. Thanks for staying with us. Our guest today is Kevin Rapp, Assistant U.S. Attorney, and we're talking about mortgage fraud. I have some questions, um, and this is coming from when I look at documents. I've been doing this for a long time. When I look at documents, if I have um, a feeling that something's not quite right, I know that I can do some research and find out whether it's true or not or, you know, who's creating this document like I, I was hired to get some papers signed at the local prison. The papers didn't look quite right. There was a law firm listed on the paperwork. So I looked at that state's bar to verify that this attorney really exists. Then I compared the phone numbers and then I called them. I said, did you create this paperwork? Because 
there's no exhibit A, there's no, you know, this form doesn't have anything filled out. And it was a warranty deed and a quick claim deed. And they said, well, we, we created the warranty deed, but there was no quick claim deed involved. And I said, well, they want signatures on this and there's no property listed, nothing. So they told me, well, just get this done, not that. And what do people, especially, we've got so many new notaries out there thinking that, you know, this is an easy job and it's not an easy job and you can end up in jail. What do people do when they look at paperwork and they think they don't have the resources, the wherewithal? What do they do when they look at paperwork and they think, hmm, something's fishy here? Who do they call? Well, well, like one is is they should they should not notarize the documents if they have any inclination that uh, something's not above board. This person isn't who they they are saying they are, or the documents they're just. You know, they're just being given a portion of the documents and not the complete document. Then the notary shouldn't shouldn't sign it. I mean, that's they're there to verify that 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 person is signing signing the document and and that the document is what it purports to be. So yeah, they should back away from it. And uh, you know, I think that that's their job. Um, and you know, usually the fraudster will will try to find a notary that. Uh, that they can exploit and and that they can go back to the well again and again because they know that um an experience yeah yeah that's uh and if if they think that that this is somebody who is perpetuating a a larger fraud they should give the fbi a call you know we we see a lot of um you know a lot of uh um fraud in the in the notary process you know uh and then oftentimes when we go to get that notary book and the notary is part of the fraud it, it just miraculously has been stolen or it is misplaced or they can't find that notary book because obviously that is a critical part of our um uh, of our evidence in a case if we can show that somebody came in and 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 falsely uh signed a particular document, provided a false identification, or, the, or they, um, they were, you know, posing as somebody else is notarizing the document, um, that's a problem. And if, you know, a notary knows is the minute they lose that book, they're supposed to contact the Secretary of State right. um, and, and make that known to them. Um, so, yeah, uh, notaries are definitely... Um, most are, are know what their job is, but sometimes they can be exploited as well. Yeah, and it's, you know, signing, a, especially a quick claim deed, that's totally blank. <laughs> you know, you're just like, no, <laughs> I don't think you should be signing that. And you have to make sure that your person that is signing has is cognizant enough to know that, you know, hey, yeah, I'm giving up my portion of this property to whomever you know i'm quick claiming it to some people don't even know what that means and you know you're you're asked to go and and have these documents executed you know use your head common sense sometimes is is better than sitting in jail let's talk about jail because yeah if you end up being you know arrested and this is a felony that you're going to federal prison 
I've heard that federal prison, they have nice cushy robes for you. They have a masseuse on staff and a mm-hmm. gourmet chef at the ready. Let's talk about what are, you know, it sounds kind of good. What is the reality of that? Well, so I, I, I mean, I really do think that's a myth. Uh, uh, first of all, uh, mortgage fraud is not an inconsequential um, crime. Uh, we saw sentences routinely in excess of 10 years that arose out of the um, the financial meltdown. Uh, the United States Sentencing Commission has uh, ratcheted up the um, the penalties for um, fraud in general. And so, of course, that includes mortgage fraud. And mortgage fraud, in a flash, you can... You can, you know, more uh, the your sentence is based upon uh, the loss amount. And if you're doing, you know, uh, you're committing mortgage fraud that involves 10, 20, 30 properties, as, as we saw back, uh, you know, between 2004 and 2007, um, you know, you, you, you can aggregate, uh, aggregate that loss and you can be in the 20 to 40 million dollar range. And so. Um, he, he, that's going to drive a very significant sentence. And and one would have to look no further than the sentences that arose out of, you know, I, I remember one of the first cases that I tried uh, back in 2009. This is one of the first cases charged out of the financial meltdown. I think the loss was probably in the $20 million range. This was a self-described real estate investor, and he ended up being sentenced to 17 years in prison. It wasn't just him, though. There was uh, a lot of the loan officers that uh, helped facilitate the fraud. They also went to prison. Um, real estate agents, of course, went to prison, uh, escrow officers. Um, so all of the inside real estate professionals, they, they can be targeted and, and um, they can receive significant sentences. I mean, the, the consequences are devastating. Uh, you're never going to be able to um, be licensed in the real estate industry uh, if you're convicted of a crime. And it, it, if you're just convicted of a felony, you're not going to be, in, and to say nothing of the fact that, that you'd go into prison. Um, are there, um, you know, are there minimum, medium, and maximum security prisons, at least in the federal system? Yeah, of course. Uh, and if you're a white-collar um, uh, defendant, you're not going to... Um, you know, you're, you're likely not going to go to a maximum security because the, the taxpayers don't need to to you're not usually violent. And so they don't need to, to pay for the extra uh, detention officers to keep an eye on you. So there are uh, um, minimum security white collar uh, prisons, but it's no picnic. There are no robes. There are no uh, no masseuse. You know, there are no. There are no luxuries in those, and so um, I think all you have to do is is talk to any white-collar criminal who has done their time and got out, and they're not going to tell you that it was um, that it was any day at the beach. So, yeah, I don't think anybody wants their liberty taken uh, away from them. And so, you know, I think people do not fully appreciate the consequences of their actions. They think that this is not a crime that's going to uh, be discovered 
um, at all. Um, they they may think that this is not a serious crime. Nobody got nobody got hurt. Maybe just an institution was impacted, a bank or whatever. But uh, I, I would um, strongly recommend you Google some of the sentences that uh, white collar criminals get, particularly in the mortgage fraud arena, um, and you'll find that they're pretty substantial. And, and there's good reasons for that, because they have to serve as a deterrent. Um, oftentimes, I find myself speaking at um, industry uh, seminars. I'm happy to tell, uh, whether it's a seminar for real estate agents or escrow officers or appraisers or whatever, I'm happy to recount these sentences. And these were um, industry professionals who thought they were, um, they were making a very good living, um, and, and living some pretty good lives. The next thing you know, they were off to, uh, prison for, for 10 years. And, and, um, you know, the, the collateral consequences to that, usually that has a, a great deal of an impact on their family situation. Uh, certainly their professional, um, situation. Yeah. You um, can't get licensed it, in anything anymore. Your earning potential is almost nil. Nil. Um, uh, the reputational uh, consequences as well. I mean, people, if they, you know, uh, everybody has a social media footprint, they can readily Google um, you and find out that, hey, this real estate agent, uh, you know, went to prison. Uh, uh, This is not somebody I want to do business with. And and I highly recommend that to people. uh, certainly in the, the, the mortgage real estate um, transactions, Google the people you're dealing with. Uh, yes. I see this again and again um, outside of that uh, where we have, uh, you know, bookkeepers uh, uh, are often hired off of Craigslist and, um, you know, because they, they come cheap and, and people turn over, uh, you know, their business accounts. To them and the next thing you know they 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 find that they've been embezzled and so um and usually these people have some type of a uh, a history of that and so uh you know take the time to to do a little due diligence on the people you're dealing with uh, google them um f- find out what their history is uh uh you know if, if somehow they've just appeared in the tucson or the phoenix area out of the blue uh, they don't seem to have a, a track record uh, in the industry. That should be a red flag, and you should you should uh, ask for recommendations and ask for some type of a history, uh, professional history, to to know who you're dealing with. Yeah, and uh, sometimes they there are people who watch, you know, the the tax in the you know when houses go into foreclosure, they're watching that. Well, I've had. Uh, clients who've had people appear on their doorstep and say, hey, I can give you the money so you can get out of this situation at, you know, 20, 25% interest. Be careful. Those are hard money lenders. And hard money lenders are, well, you know what they are. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And it's it's sad because they're taking advantage. That's a, that is a, uh, that's a, a, pretty common scheme is for somebody who is um, in arrears on their mortgage, somebody will come in, look, 
here's what I'll do. You just give me the uh, warranty deed to your property. I'll bring you current on your mortgage. You um, you uh, uh, um, try to to do your best in in paying me, and um, you know they they uh, you you just have to make very reduced payments, not to your bank. I'll I'll take over paying your bank or or whoever the lender might be. And but you know obviously I'm sure you can understand I would need a, a warranty deed to give me some security and um, you know I'm going to take a very modest commission on this and, and what really happens is they continue to pay uh, to this person and that person has uh, taken that warranty deed gone out got a home equity loan on the property. Um, you know, taken equity out of the property or worse, sold the property out from under them. Yeah. Um, and uh, then that person is not only is their credit now destroyed because they never really did make the payments to the lender um, and not, and then now they've lost the house. So be, be really careful if you get into that type of situation. And I think that, you know, given the last year or so, uh, um, where people have, you know, certain industries obviously have been impacted by the pandemic. These are the people who are going to be in, have some financial pressures where they are going to be um, exploited by fraudsters who uh, see an opportunity to make some money and, and you know, assert somebody who has had, you know, a sterling um, credit has made their uh, mortgage payments without, missing a beat, but all of a sudden you have a worldwide pandemic, their industry has been impacted and, and now they can't make those payments and in comes a fraudster who sees an opportunity. As I, as I said from the outset, you know, fraudsters, um, they move where the market moves. And yeah. Very creative. When they, when, they, um, when they see a current opportunity, they're going to take it. And so everybody has to be vigilant uh, and make sure that they are they are uh, they know who they're dealing with okay i had another um question i'm in it's a question i'm asking at the closing table there's a lot of paperwork obviously to sign but one of those papers says that i'm not going to ask for a forbearance my my um income has not changed during the process of this loan and i'm not going to ask for forbearance what if something happens they, you know, they get COVID, whatever happens, all of a sudden they're asking for a forbearance. Does the institution that they have their loan with have to give them that forbearance because they sign saying they'll not ask for one? Well, I mean, so that's, a great, that's actually a great question. I think that probably, you know, some of the, um, you know, the, the moratoriums on evictions and, and, and you could probably rely upon that, you know, um, but uh, unfortunately maybe just relying upon the good graces of the, um, of the, uh, of the, the lender, institution. you know, the pandemic is sort of this, um, you know, what we like to call in the, um, uh, in the legal arena, the, the force majeure, the, the uh, sort of an act of God that nobody could have, uh, um, anticipate. Yeah. Right. So I, I do think there's got to be some latitude there that, you know, um, you know, uh, uh, who, who could have anticipated that um, there would be this worldwide pandemic that would have 
seriously impacted your industry overnight such that you 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 couldn't make the payments and so you know you just have to hope that um it that uh that a a conventional lender has uh some flexibility in that regard that they can work with you and and um uh, i'm not entirely familiar with that particular document I, I can't remember that document coming up um uh during the cases that i handled is that is that uh this agreement not to seek a forbearance is that a a document that is a fairly new um, yes absolutely (laughs) absolutely they there is so much creative paperwork i did a closing the other day it was 223 pages (laughs) it was like really who came up with this yeah no it, it, it you know everybody's been in that situation where they they go into this room with uh uh with the lender they're they're given the stack of papers. They run through these papers. They yeah. sign whatever's in front of them. You know, yeah. they're they on, don't read the, them. The time center, um, uh, lends itself to, and particularly that was where you know where the the rubber met the road on the fraud back in in you know during the financial crisis. Is you know you have these very unsophisticated buyers coming in. They're they're in this sort of very daunting situation where they're given the stack of papers. The loan officer runs through these papers and they're signing whatever they they have. Most of them don't really understand what they're signing. And then I have witnessed closings and and title companies where sign sign date sign date sign date. They don't tell them not even a thumbnail description of what they're signing. And I'm just yeah. like, oh my god, they could be signing anything. I had a man. Um, who lost his house in a foreclosure because of the pandemic. And a law firm contacted him and said, we want to represent you. Sent me the paperwork to have it signed by this person. I read the paperwork. I was a little concerned. I gave it to him and I said, have you read your paperwork? And he said, no, I'm just going to sign. I said, no, you're going to read this contract. And I'll be back later to pick it up. (laughs) Yeah. It, it was a little disturbing. It wasn't something that, you know, I would have signed, even if I was in a dire situation. I wouldn't have signed it. So, yeah, but I, I can't tell somebody, don't sign it. Yeah, that's, that's, it's actually at the, uh, you know, usually those loan applications, which, you know, are, are sort of the place we start with, with the fraud, because that's where you're signing it under penalty of perjury, you know, the, the, the fine print in those, those uh, uh, those loan applications, um, you know, the the HUD, the 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 ten thirty, right? They they have that fine print in there that says, "Hey, any material misstatement could subject you to criminal penalties, right? Federal criminal penalties." In and teeny weeny print, yes. Teeny weeny print, yes. <laughs> and, and often those loan applications, as you know, are taken over the phone. You know, the loan officer calls people up and says, "Okay, let's talk about your." assets and your income and your 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 job and often that document is not signed but they don't see it it you know a hard copy of it until the first time is when they're doing the closing the closing it's, it's yeah among those stack of papers and here they sign this document that has some really um you know devastating consequences if you if you were to 
Yeah, they upped your income (laughs) and they made it a primary residence so you didn't have to pay a higher interest rate instead of an investment property. Insurance, yeah, right. Oh. Yeah. Is there a way that people can, you know, there's these ads on TV about buying insurance to secure your title to keep the fraud people away. Is We only have like three minutes left. Is is there any truth to that? Is there insurance that you can buy for your title? Well, okay. So, you know, this is a, uh, it's a, it's, it's not, it's a very rare fraud. I mean, basically, you know, it's, um, you know, there, they are, it, it is the situation where somebody is stealing the title to your house. I mean, I just don't know how frequently that, that happens and whether or not you have to go out and, um, secure some type of third party insurance to prevent that. I mean, I thought that's you know, what title insurance was all about, and that's very expensive. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so, you know, but you know how that is. The something happens, then you make a claim, and then they find some reason. You know, oftentimes. not exactly. Not, not w- to pay on that claim. I want to ask you but, real quick about wire fraud because it's prevalent yeah. in the in the real estate industry. How does somebody protect themselves against wire fraud? Well, so you, you have to understand what wire fraud is. So wire fraud is, is sort of the statute that we use as federal prosecutors because it, all it requires is the, a, a, um, the use of a wires that cross state lines that gives us our federal nexus or our federal jurisdiction. And so we can, we can use wire fraud in just about anything, whether it's investment fraud or mortgage fraud, because oftentimes a wire, whether it's in money or a document, is is crossing state lines. The one thing that people should be aware of about wire fraud is it does have a 20-year, in some cases, statutory maximum sentence, and in in other cases, it's 30 years. And so, um, you know, because many many statutes uh, have just a five-year statutory maximum, and so uh, we like to use uh, wire fraud, but we use it you know, I guess in the mortgage fraud context, if you're transferring a loan application, if you're sending a loan application that has false information in it from California to Arizona, that could be wire fraud. If you are filing a false loan application to get a uh, fraudulently obtained mortgage and a bank in New York is funding that loan and they're transferring the money to a bank in Arizona, that that's going to be wire fraud. So, um, yeah, I think wire fraud is... 20 seconds. Is yeah, wire fraud is something we use. It's a great tool for federal prosecutors, and, and we love having it. I want to thank you so much for doing this show with me. You've answered a lot of questions for a lot of people. And until next week, shop local, stay safe, and tune in next week. We have Santa Cruz County on. Talk to you soon.